Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focus Compounding, sitting next to Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? Uh, it's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great for everybody else. If this is the first time you are tuning in, be sure to check out all of our content. Go to www.focuscompounding.com to get access to investment write-ups by Sir Jeff Gannon. Make sure you follow me on Twitter, at Focus Compound. Um, every single day, we use QuickFS. That is quickfs.net. Uh, if you follow me on Twitter and you see me tweeting out pictures of 20-year data of financial statements, that's me pulling the information from QuickFS. I'd like to say that I you know, put together that model, but really all I did was click a button and pulled it on whatever company I wanted. Uh, the website continues to get better. And if you do sign up, uh, make sure you tell them that you came from Focus Compounding. I mean, look at this. Now they have the United Kingdom, uh, Australia, and New Zealand. So I think when we first... Uh, join or you know start using the website. It was just the United States and Canada, mm-hmm. and now they have Canada, Mexico, Australia, New Zealand, United Kingdom, and you can pull data in seconds. So if you do sign up for that, um, tell them you came from Focus Compounding. So in today's podcast, we're going to be talking about a topic that I get asked about probably a hundred times a day, and it is how much is too much to pay for a great business. And I really want to break down. Okay. Why Why do you kind of smirked a little bit? You're like, well, this is going to be. Kind of hard to talk about on the podcast, or no? We'll talk okay, about it, yeah. um, we can really break down the difference between being like a good business and not a good business, right? Okay, and if you are investing in a good business or you want to hold it for the long term, mm-hmm. the returns that the business generates is going to matter a lot more than if you're approaching it from like a multiple re-rating standpoint or like the beauty contest thing, where you're just going to want to you know buy into the company today and hope to flip it in a couple of years mm-hmm. when the market realizes something that uh, you know you realize here today. But really, I just want to talk about you know how much you could pay today and still you know make it worth it or, or still outperform the market. And I have, let me see if I actually could pull this up. I have, if you're watching us on the screen, I have a, a quick little chart thing right here. And we could talk about just different scenarios and, you know, kind of go through the math of it. But we could present a hypothetical, right? Let's say that a a stock is able to compound its book value by 20% per year for 20 years, right? And let's say that you're actually going to hold the stock for 20 years. So let's say it has a 20% after-tax return on capital and they Mm -hmm. reinvest 100% of that cash flow. Right. Okay. Let's say that you, um, you know, we could go through like how much does it matter how much you paid like times book value and what would your return be theoretically over those 20 years? Um, and we could go through it. And if you paid one time book value and you hold a stock that was compounded by 20% per year for 20 years, obviously your return would be 20%. Right. This is assuming that the uh, multiple doesn't expand or contract. Yeah. yeah. If you pay two times book value, you would make 16% a year for 20 years. If you pay three times book value, you would make 14% a year for 20 years. If you pay four times book value, you would make 12% a year for 20 years. If you paid five times book value, you would make 11% a year for 20 years. And if you paid six times book value, you would make 10% a year for 20 years. Right. Those assume that contra- that the uh, multiple contracts because you're paying a premium to book value. Mm-hmm. So that's why you're getting a lower amount. So it's contracting to one times book value when you go to sell the stock 20 years later. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
So the interesting thing is when you think about what is a good business and in our hypothetical business, this business earns a 20% return on capital, right? After tax, and then they're able to reinvest 100% of that capital. You could still pay six times book value and basically do better, I guess, by a couple percentage points or a percentage point yeah. than the market. Certainly you could pay four times as much as you would for a normal business and you'll still come out meaningfully ahead. You mm-hmm. know, four times there is 12% a year. Um, so you beat it by several percent. So over 20 years, it's a huge advantage. There's no doubt about that. So yeah, if you knew that something could grow at 20% per year for 20 years, uh, it could justify paying four times more in terms of multiple. We're using book value, but there's lots of other things that would be the same. So if you normally would pay 12 times P for something, you could pay 48 times or something. You know, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is interesting. I mean, like, so especially for like companies like this, where they're able to reinvest their cash flow and stuff like that, it's like over short, shorter holding periods, um, uh, in stocks that are reinvesting less of their earnings, uh, per year, the price you pay today matters. Right. Um, but over a longer holding period, when you're really going to benefit from the actual returns that the business generates, uh, it's like the return on the reinvestment matters the most. Right. And that's because of the amount of reinvestment and the um, spread between what you could make on the money and what it's being reinvested at. Mm -hmm. So in this case, let's say that you could make 10% a year in in stocks generally, but the reinvestment is being done at 20% a year, then you're getting a 10% spread there. And then a large amount, in this case, 100% of the earnings are being retained for that. Mm -hmm. But um, when people ask about what's the right price to pay, how much did you pay up for something that's paying out all earnings, really you shouldn't pay more for it at all just uh, because it isn't retaining any earnings. In the long run, it has to be earnings retention, and then it has to also be a return on capital, that the return on the retained earnings that is higher than your opportunity cost. Mm-hmm. So basically, we're talking about it has to be a double-digit return on capital, and it has to be retaining a meaningful amount of earnings. So it can't be paying out almost everything. Buybacks are a little more complicated. If the stock's cheap enough, then the buybacks would still work. You know, so How would you factor that in? Uh, buybacks are very tricky. Um, the, the actual way I would factor it in is, um, very large amounts of buybacks are very attractive for an investor because what you'll do is you'll buy the stock when it's cheap. And then when you think the buybacks are not creating value, you would sell the stock, but you'd be selling at a high multiple. So there is a great deal of safety. And if you, as long as you know, it's a good business, buybacks are much more um, desirable than dividend payments. It isn't just an issue of the taxation differences. It's actually an issue that um, if you are a value investor, you would prefer buybacks anyway. Because if the buyback isn't attractive, you should sell the stock. Whereas uh, in terms of the dividend, it's not changing the situation based on that. You're not getting a better return just because the stock is cheap. You're getting a higher yield. Um, but it's not compounding in the same way. And I talked about that once before for people, but in the very long run, it's a big benefit for a shareholder in a cheap stock to have them continue to buy back the stock. It's much bigger benefit than it is for the dividend. And that's because there's no compounding of the dividend, basically. Mm -hmm. Now, some people may argue, well, you could take the dividend and reinvest it in the stock and create much the same effect with some tax, uh, you know, losses due to that, some leakage. But other than that, um, you could kind of replicate the same thing. Yeah, and we have it right here. I mean, price divided by asset, you know, so like equity invested capital, 
Um, and then you care about the amount of earnings. So like the reinvestment rate, the amount mm. of earnings re- reinvest in the business and then the return on that reinvestment. So that's like the spread that you're talking about. Yeah. And you can see if you take those three items, why did Berkshire Hathaway do so well as a stock? The price was less than the book value, right? Mm-hmm. Then the amount of earnings reinvested was basically 100%. As soon as he could, he got rid of the dividend. And then the return on that reinvestment was very high. Um, it was, it, there are other businesses which were as high or higher, though. But with those businesses did not retain all of their earnings like he did. And they always traded at big premiums over book value. So he had the kinds of returns on investment you might on reinvestment that you might expect more from um, like branded um, consumer goods companies and stuff who are only retaining some of their earnings and who traded at a high price to book. But his stock, when he started with Berkshire, low price divided by assets, huge amount of earnings reinvested 100% really and then a good reinvestment mm-hmm. but 20% is you know you could get very good returns with 20% instead of 10% it doesn't it's actually the return on invested capital doesn't have to be tremendously high yeah that was going to be my next question and when you typically look at companies like this i mean are you i mean breaking it down to you know the percentage decimal pointers and more so of oh i just i intuitively know that this is pretty high uh, yeah i would say the second one um it, it doesn't really matter mm-hmm. whether a company has a 60% return on capital or 30% for the most part. It matters more what um, if it's going in the right direction or not and whether you think it will over time. But any business that's earning 20 or 30% returns on capital when you think in general returns are, you know, say 6 to 12% or something, um, cash returns, you know, uh, it's a big advantage. If it if it earns double the return on capital of other businesses, that's a really big advantage. And it really comes down to the issue of how predictable that is, how long in the future can go, and how much of your earnings you can retain. But yeah, I'd rather buy something with a lower return on invested capital that can retain all of it um, forever than something that can't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's a problem that sometimes companies make is they do retain it, right? And it, that all that capital comes from an industry or business that they have a mode in or some sort of competitive advantage. And then they go into some other industry, they invest that capital in something else that, you know, sort of the diversification thing, you know, that, um, Right. Peter Lynch talks about. And it's the marginal return on invested capital that matters. And it's almost impossible to measure, but people should always keep that in mind. When you look at like, um, you know, uh, companies that have been very successful for decades, Southwest Airlines or um, Walmart or something like that, generally their return on invested capital over time is going to go down. And so when you're measuring on average, you're still measuring from an earlier period in which it was stronger and the actual incremental return on invested capital is probably even lower than it appears because it was so good in the earlier period. They can still create a lot of value if they started very high, right? If you start with a 40% return on invested capital and over 30 years you go down to a 20% return on capital, then although it's getting worse throughout that entire period, um, your incremental returns on capital are still good. But that's the thing that you have to look at. And so if you want flat or rising return on invested capital, but if it's a lower return on invested capital, it doesn't matter a great deal to me. I would rather, like I said, something it's perfectly fine to have something that has a 19% um, return on equity that's retaining all of its earnings all the time as opposed to something that has 40% but is not re- retaining it. And also it's headed in the wrong direction. You know, mm-hmm. the incremental returns are getting a lot lower. Yeah, I mean, what if Buffett paid out a dividend? Right. Know, I think he did one time, didn't he? Mm-hmm. They talked about them, the snowball. He got suckered into it by the board and then immediately afterwards was like, we'll never do that ever again or something yeah. like that. And then they did something else. They created some sort of like income thing, right? To take out short-term shareholders or something along those lines. Didn't they do something like that with Berkshire? I thought they created, it was like a preferred something. 
I forget what it was. Okay. I don't I don't remember the details on it, but anyways, um so our most popular podcast we've ever done, mm-hmm. externally on YouTube as well, is the investing the Warren Buffett wave, free right. cash flow plus growth. And that's the way that we typically think about it, right? So the whole return is what we mm-hmm. call it. And it's basically the free cash flow yield, which is free cash flow divided by market cap plus growth. Right. And that's the way that Buffett thinks about it as well. When it, you can listen to Alice Schroeder talk about him with the tab company, car tab company, and just the way he thought about it um, in general. Now, obviously, interest rates are different, so the opportunity cost is different. But mm-hmm. she basically said he wanted a 15% earnings yield today that he felt like could grow over time. So kind of the same principles, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and the example we have here is if you buy a stock that pays you a 4% dividend and is growing at 6% a year, you know, you can make 10% a year for as long as you own the stock without having to sell at a higher PE, price to book, et cetera. So basically, right. along the lines, just for simplicity of the same multiple. Um, yeah. And if you look at the long-term return in stocks, there's a very slight, very, very slight, maybe 1% or something, depending if you measure hundred years or something, uh, return that comes from multiple expansion and that you should probably omit and assume can't continue forever because otherwise at a hundred years from now and then a hundred years from then you're going to end up with stocks having hundred times PEs, you know? Um, but if you assume flat returns, otherwise most of the return in stocks and in indexes generally can be explained by their, their dividend yield, which is like their free cash flow yield that we're talking about and, um, their growth in sales per share. Mm -hmm. Uh, You could use earnings, you could use whatever you want, but on average, those two factors together should add up to about the return in the stock. Mm-hmm. So if you have sales per share growth of 5% a year, let's say, like, let's say it's been 6% a year in an economy growing for a hundred years and you're diluting by 1% a year, your, your share count, right? Then it's like 5% a year is left over. Um, and you pay a 3% dividend cause that's what they've been priced at. Then you should expect returns of eight or 9% or something. And that's not that far from what stocks have actually done. Mm-hmm. That's what you'd expect in any country over a long enough period of time. And what I like to do. I guess to break it down in this simple way is you could really factor in when you're looking at a situation, let's say your hurdle rate, like just break it down from like a math perspective. And we've done this many times on paper, Mm -hmm. right? Let's say your hurdle is 15%, you know, it'd be like 15% equals and you could see, okay, you have a, um, you know, let's call it a free cash flow yield today of 6%. So that means if, you know, you want to get to that 15%, then you have to fill in that equation with that other number and be like, okay, well, can they actually hit this growth? For example, to fill this, you know, algebraic uh, expression. Right. You're basically solve using for X. Th- three items that you have there and you can move any one of the three um, to solve for it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you can either solve for it by assuming taking any one thing and holding it constant. So assuming what's the price that I'm paying. So what's your dividend yield or what's your free cash flow yield and then figure out your return and how much growth you have and things like that. You can solve it otherwise by figuring out what return do you want? How much growth does that mean you'll have? Because mm-hmm. then you have two variables that you're holding firm. You know what the price, what the yield is because the price is set today and you, you're you supplying a discount rate. You're supplying a hurdle rate of your own. Once you have those two, you can figure out what do I need in terms of um, growth. Mm-hmm. It's a good way of price, figuring out what is the market in essence pricing in in terms of growth. And it can give you an idea of whether it's realistic or not because you can find many cases where it seems unrealistic in the sense that it's expecting much higher growth than it's ever achieved in the past or something like that. Yeah. Cause I tweeted that and then somebody said, Oh yeah, he was, you know, uh, trolling. He basically was like, Oh yeah, because having a 1% free cash flow yield and 10% growth is the same as having 10% growth. I'm sorry, a 10% free cash flow yield and 1% growth. I'm like, actually that's the complete opposite, right? Having a 10% free cash flow yield, or I'm sorry, a 1% free cash flow yield today means that you better be right on growth in the future. Right. You could think to of get, it to get to that hurdle. Yes. You could think of it as a curve that way. And um, in a sense that is uh, they are, I would say, um, equivalent 
with the care that you have to be, I can understand what he's saying there, but you have to be careful because it actually is the same. No, I get um, it, but I'm saying like it's like an inverted way of looking at it. I feel like is why we why I technically like right, to do but it. many people I think don't think that they are the same. I think many people think that a 10% yield is in a sense much more attractive. 10% yield and 1% growth rate is much more attractive than 1% yield and 10% growth rate because they figure the growth rate won't be maintained forever and factors like that, which is true. And that's why it's the perpetual growth rate that matters. Um, but when you, but for some things, it's not as hard to figure out. Uh, it's not as hard to bet on that as you might think. So for instance, when we're looking at an insurance company or bank or something, it could be possible that they are getting a steady return on their reinvestment. And so it makes sense. But there are other businesses where that wouldn't make sense. So, for instance, you know, if you have um, uh, companies in which you have to grow your assets by so a like lot. like a restaurant. Yeah. Companies that you have to grow your assets by a lot, it could be a real problem. Uh, but it is that at, at some level, a helpful intellectual framework to think about the fact that those two are essentially the same thing. That's something that even something as that's uh, something that's trading at a hundred times earnings and something that's trading at ten times earnings, but the growth rate is ten times ten times different, one percent versus ten percent. Mm-hmm. If those were maintained long enough into the future and your hold horizon was forever, in fact, would be awfully similar. Well, it would, but you, you, I think the way that you think about it would have to be different to get there. Yes, but yeah. then you ask, well, why do I think of these things as being different? Mm-hmm. And that's where you start to get, you can uh, see the flaw in both of those things, right? So the flaw in paying 100 times, if you're going to have a 10% growth forever, is that probably the 10% growth will be true for a while, but not forever. So if we could count on 10% growth forever, um, that could then, you know, this stock, you could pay, you could be pay surprisingly high prices for it if 10% growth actually happened forever. However, you'll notice that the actual number of companies that have grown 10% or more, like if you take companies that have grown at close to 10% for nearly 100 years, it's a list of all just amazing businesses. Mm-hmm. Most businesses eventually cannot grow that at even such a low rate. 10% doesn't sound like a very high rate, but they actually can't sustain that for a period of 50 to 150 years. They just can't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, it becomes in, you know like branding things that you know very well. Um, However, on the other side, the problem that you realize is that while paying just 10 times earnings sounds really attractive, if something has only a 1% growth rate, you may have to flip it fairly fast to be able to get any kind of return from it because things could deteriorate. And people, even if they do not deteriorate, may not want to hold an asset that has such poor return characteristics, Mm -hmm. you know? How do you get over staying out of crummy businesses that are at like a 15% free cash flow yield or 20% free cash flow yield? Sometimes you come across them and you're like, oh, wow, this is very levered or, um, you know, just it, it looks like there's problems on the horizon, which is why it's trading so cheap. I guess from there, it's really just using your business analyst skills to dig deeper. I mean, because no, you know, 15% free cash flow yield is treated equally amongst different companies. Right. Uh my approach to it, I think, is somewhat different from other people's approach. I worry most about the possibility that they could use a lot of retained earnings at low rates of return. So I'm not sure I agree with other people in terms of what is a crummy business. As long as a crummy business does not take capital, it may be safer to invest in a crummy business than you think. The fact that a business is going to shrink is not necessarily as bad a thing as you might think. Buffett made a lot of money investing in a lot of shrinking businesses where he made mistakes with putting more capital into a business that wasn't good. If you can keep taking money out of a shrinking business, it may not be that big of a problem. And it certainly may, uh, a shrinking business that takes no more capital and an average business that takes capital 
may not have that much different returns than you think. What you have to, in, in fact, you maybe should not pay more for an average business than for a bad business if the average business is going to take 100% of your capital because you don't have any value creation by doing that. Um, I think the the danger becomes great, though, in terms of understanding management, stuff like that. If Buffett had not been running uh, Berkshire, then many of those businesses would have had bad results because they would have put capital into them. He, he might have, someone else running it might have put more capital into um, blue chip stamps, the trading business, yeah. may have put it in, they, they sold out of the department stores, you know. I was so, say, how many of his early businesses failed eventually? Right, but it's not necessarily a problem because he used those, Buffett used um, failing businesses, shrinking businesses, by not putting more capital into them and acquiring other things that vastly outperformed companies that were average businesses that took capital. So in the long run, it wasn't necessarily a, it wasn't a mistake to buy blue chip and as opposed to buying an average business and reinvesting 100% into it because that doesn't create value. What creates value is buying blue chip stamps and then using it to buy an extraordinary business sees so that any capital that goes into anything else creates value. Mm -hmm. um, so I wouldn't say it's necessarily a problem except of how severe the capital allocation thing becomes. And so I am willing to invest in businesses that are shrinking, that people think are bad businesses and things like that, when I think that the management is not going to put additional capital into them mm -hmm. because that's when I think they become very interesting. Um, Why is that? become very interesting well you just then have to figure out how much of the uh cash you expect to get out of the business over time and what else you expect to be put into eventually all investments should be cash to cash operations so you shouldn't reward a company uh you shouldn't pay a higher multiple just for the the name of it to own it you shouldn't think oh i'd rather own amazon than acme because I get something from it. I get a feeling of security and stuff from owning Amazon. It's just a question of how much cash they will produce over time. So if you have something that's going to produce a bunch of cash over time, uh, and then it's, you know it's going to invest in something else over time, then really if the, if the next five years of a business, if you buy a business at $20 a share and it's producing $10 a share in uh, cash flow, uh, that it's going to invest in a different business, then at the end of those five years, you're going to have $50 invested in something, a generic $50, you know, $50 invested in generic business assets, mm -hmm. which should be worth a lot versus the $20 that you paid. Now, I agree that if they're going to invest in something that you know is going to shrink and that it's going to get worse and worse over time, then you don't want to do that, right? But many businesses, the reason why many net nets work out is not what people think, you know, it isn't it isn't really that they liquidate. And it, it, it is more that they turn the business around from being a very bad business to being a so-so so business, but at the same time without putting more capital into it. So the return on capital thing works both ways. Competition goes into those areas where there's um, high returns on capital, but also flows out of those areas in which there are low returns mm, on capital. Yeah, good point. And so eventually you do the same amount of sales, but just with less inventory and things like that. You know, you really do. If, if something isn't attractive, eventually you slash things in the company, including things as basic as like inventory and stuff like that. You take two stores and you say, let's put them down to one, you know? We've talked about the even things with banks and stuff like that, where people say, oh, well, you know, um, and other businesses, but banks are a really good example. Uh, I would, I don't, let me put it this way. I think that the number of branches will shrink faster than the uh, a number of deposit accounts. 
you know. Mm-hmm. So uh, pe- when people ask, like, how worried am I about that with banks? Not very, because there's a significant amount of capital and and ex- expenses salaries that can be taken out of the business and it's really just a question of whether some things will shift from banks to non-banks that perform the same functions faster than you can shift expenses out of your bank the same thing with people ask a lot about um car things because we own a car dealer um i really think that they will be able to take assets and expenses out of car dealers in general faster than they lose business to any other uh sort of thing like what type of expenses I think you could have. Few, I think you could have a lot fewer dealerships. You could have greater space between them, lower density, and so I think people could be willing to go further to dealerships. Um, I think right now they're packed in more than they have to be for reasons that have to do with the low amount of use of online. And I think that if you put more and more of the process online, then you don't need to have quite as many dealerships as you have now. And I think there are other things that you might not have to have quite as many cars. Um, on site. There are different things that you could do to manage how that would work if most of the process was done online. Mm -hmm. I think you could offset a lot of that. I think you could... Broker cost or salesman cost. I mean, there's a lot of things. Right. I think that there's a a lot of ways that you could increase the amount of uh, dollar volume of sales at each location. So I just don't think that you would necessarily have to have as much land and as much inventory in terms of cars on the lot in high... um, uh, high expense land, mm-hmm. uh, you know, very, very desirable retail space. Yeah, just having an offsite warehouse, right. pull it up, drive it there. Yeah. Um, if you're doing most of your browsing in an online type situation and then you're just closing at a dealership, it the dealership now can be two or three times further away from you and it's still convenient enough as opposed to if you're window shopping, basically, as some people do, by going to a few different dealerships that are all located pretty close to each other and considering things that way. I mean, you're doing more research yourself online. Do you think that's how it is, though, with cars? Do you think, I mean, I I would bet a vast majority of people that go to dealerships, they know the type of car that they want when they're going there. I think that is true now, more so than it was in the past. And I think that's because of the internet. Internet, yeah. Yeah. So it could really change the industry going forward like that. And I think because of COVID, um, more and more of the process Mm -hmm. uh, has gone in the direction of being able to be done online. Yeah. And there's just more stuff that can be shared that way than across a, a a group of dealers. If you own a lot of different locations, how many cars do you need? Where do you need them? All of that kind of stuff becomes easier, I think, to manage um those levels so i don't see it as harmful to returns on capital necessarily but then that doesn't mean that i see a lot of growth for it i'm just saying i look at it and say do i think that you could do a higher amount of earnings on the same or lower amount of capital it's like a railroad or a bank yeah and i'd say yes it is and that's what i care most about yeah yeah i don't think it becomes less efficient um and a lot of that's just looking at the numbers like we talk about you know uh, for instance, bank branches in the United States, there haven't been a lot of new banks started or a lot of bank branches opened up um, since the financial crisis. You know, it hasn't been something that's happened a lot anyway. So although it might have been sudden what happened with COVID, it wasn't a huge surprise when COVID did happen that some banks pulled back on that and thought about, do I really need these costs and everything? It was already something that was dawning on them over the last decade. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely true when we talk about things like dealers. For the most part, there haven't been more and more added over time. There's been more and more volume done at fewer and fewer dealerships. Mm-hmm. Um, 
for a very long time. I mean, there used to be a lot lower sales per dealership, um, you know, 60 years ago or something. So it was a trend that is positive for being able to do more turnover, which is what we'd like to see. You know, when you invest in a business, you would like to, I mean, turns, improving turns is something that is a big reason why you'd be attracted to an industry, right? Sure. Mm-hmm. Is that you think the turns are going to improve over time, that you think there'll be less need for inventory, PPE, et cetera, per dollar of sales. Mm-hmm. And you don't want to go into industries where the reverse is true, like where you feel they have to carry more inventory. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see coming out of COVID or when, you know, the world fully is normalized, right? how much more efficient companies are. Because I mean, as you know, right, we've spoken with companies where they used COVID as an excuse to restructure. Right. And to cut the fat and to think about their business from a different perspective of, do we need these costs? Do we need this extra branch? Do we need this extra salesman? Yeah. Saleswoman, you know? Right, and so that can change the return on capital uh, situation that they have there. Um, the downside being that if you happen to have cut more labor than you needed, then it can become harder to entice people to come back, Mm -hmm. um, to get new workers in and stuff like that. But if you just think that you have less locations that you need, you're going to use less office space. That's one of the obvious ones Mm -hmm. that you could over time economize more on office space. That would be a real, um, attractive possibility, right? You could look for less premium office space, more diffuse, um, you could cycle more workers through where they're not working all the time at the same location. So on average across a whole organization, even pretty small reductions in how much time someone spends in the office would add up. It might not seem like it going from five to four days for someone is a big difference in terms of the office demands, but it can be pretty big for a company depending on what sure. kind of company. Yeah. I mean, we've talked a little bit about Walmart, right? It'll be interesting to see, you know, if 24 seven is a, is a thing again, mm-hmm. or, you know, certain restaurants or other retail outlets closing early at eight o'clock as opposed to like midnight or being open all night. Yeah. I think you'll see shorter hours than you used to have because mm-hmm. more companies experimented with having shorter hours and they'll say, I mean, eventually they may go back, right? Because eventually for competitive reasons and stuff, you test out everything. Mm-hmm. And so if you can't grow sales any other way, eventually you test it out. But at first, I think lots of places will say, well, we didn't really see a lot of harm by going to shorter hours, right? And so why would we be the first ones to go to longer hours, mm-hmm. back to longer hours? when there's Yeah, others? they're just starting the cycle all over again. Yeah. <laughs> you know, oh, well, you know, the competitors are doing it, so we got to do right. it. And then just, but eventually, you know, yeah, again. exactly. Eventually everyone, you know, it's not a guarantee that it won't happen again. But it is for a period of time, I think that you'll see shorter hours from mm-hmm. companies, yeah. Got it. Cool. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with the both of us here today on the Focus Compounding Podcast. Make sure you hit that subscribe button wherever you are listening or watching us. Um, a rating and review goes a very long way. If you're watching us on the screen right now, uh, QuickFS, be sure to sign up there. Um, it's the software that Jeff and I use every single day. And if you do sign up, tell them that you came from Focus Compounding. Uh, the feature that I use the most is clicking this right here, download financials, and it will pull 20 years of financials key ratios, balance sheet, income, cash flow statement, everything. Uh, So definitely be sure to check that out. I thank everybody so much for the support and we will see you in the next podcast.